I hope you enjoyed a festive President's Day this week. Okay, let's go through some presidents. My most underrated presidents, Calvin Coolidge and Ulysses Grant. Most overrated. Well, those might be easier for me. Woodrow Wilson and FDR. How about presidents that I can't get enough learning about? Well, there's two there, and they've almost um, are contemporaneous with one another. LBJ and Richard Nixon. Those two were, were fascinating individuals. And we've covered some of the reasons why for some of those names in past episodes of The Far Middle. And I'm sure we'll touch on those historic figures once again as the journey continues into future episodes. Yeah, you found The Far Middle. If you did not uh, intend to, and we're here by chance or by accident, stick around. You might like what you hear. I'm the host, Nick Deolius, and we construct each episode as a string of connections. It's always paying our infinite respects to Dr. James Burke, the host of the classic BBC science and history docuseries, Connections. It is sports dedication time with a connection with our dedication to presidents for President's Day week and also connecting to history and Jimmy Carter, 1980. There was a Summer Olympics planned that year in Russia and Moscow and geopolitics, boy, they were aflame, which resulted in a collision of superpowers that ended in a boycott of those summer games. Allow me to refresh events for those who remember and to introduce a fascinating series of events for those who don't even know. The Western governments, uh, including the United States, are led by the United States. They first considered the idea of boycotting the Moscow 1980 Summer Olympics in response to the situation in Afghanistan just prior to Christmas in 1979. Now, that situation was the USSR invading Afghanistan toward the end of 79. Boycotting the Olympics because of the bad actions of the USSR was not a new thought. In the mid-1970s, proposals for an Olympic boycott circulated widely among human rights activists to sanction the Soviets for other abuses. But at that time, very few nations considered or seriously considered a boycott, and none of note ended up with plans to sit out Olympics during that era. But then with the December 1979 Soviet march into Afghanistan, things changed. The noted uh, Soviet nuclear scientist and dissident Andrei Sakharov really got things rolling with his advocacy and call for a boycott. And that's where our President Carter came in. In January 1980, the Carter administration joined Sakharov in his appeal, and the Americans set a deadline by which the Soviet Union had to pull out of Afghanistan or face the consequences, which included a boycott of the Summer Games. Canada soon joined the United States in threatening to boycott the uh, Olympic Games if Soviet forces didn't leave Afghanistan. There were interesting sidebars to the drama. President Carter proposed moving the Olympics to Greece on a permanent basis, but the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, rejected that idea. And with the Soviets not budging through early 1980, the United States had started to push its allies to boycott the Summer Games as well. So the, the momentum and the pressure started to build. The Soviets were banking on the spineless IOC to behave the same as it did in the past when the Soviets invaded Hungary back in the mid-1950s and Czechoslovakia in 1968. And as I said, the idea of a boycott, that was nothing new. And the IOC always trudged ahead with the Games no matter what the geopolitical actions of the host nation might have been at the time. The U.S. deadline for Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan to avoid the boycott, it did get delayed. It was moved to late May, 
And the president of the IOC, boy, desperately, I would put it, tried to intervene and play peacemaker between the United States and the USSR. But President Carter, he wasn't going to relent and he stuck to his position. So it's interesting to me that you got a president who was not noted for backbone, Jimmy Carter, but he definitely showed some here in this historic instance. Now, the IOC, they threw a fit. It said, here's a quote from them, pressures by the U.S. and other supporting countries for the boycott were an inappropriate means to achieve a political end, and the victims of this action would be the athletes, end quote. West Germany, it wasn't too happy either. And remember, at the time, there was a West Germany and an East Germany. The nation was divided. Um, West German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt said that the American attitude that the Allies should, as he put it, simply do as they are told, that that was unacceptable. But, you know, in the end, West Germany did join the boycott. So the countdown was bringing matters close to the point of no return. In late April 1980, we saw the Bilderberg meeting, which is that enclave of U.S. and European and global elites that meets regularly. The Bilderberg meeting debated the pros and cons of a boycott. can only imagine what that debate of the elites sounded like during the time. And then here's another detail of the 1980 Summer Games boycott drama that ties to a prior far middle sports dedication subject. Muhammad Ali, the greatest, he traveled all across Africa, from Tanzania to Nigeria to Senegal, to unsuccessfully convince the leaders of those nations to join the boycott. But you know what he did convince? Ali was successful with Kenya, because Kenya did join the boycott. Many countries ultimately joined the Americans and boycotted the games. These included Japan and West Germany, who I mentioned earlier. Now, here's a shocker. China. China joined the United States boycott of those summer games. And that's a reminder that China and Russia have historic issues and are historic rivals, despite their short-term common interests of today. And here's a bigger shocker. Our arch enemy, Iran, under Ayatollah Khomeini, no less, and his new government at the time, they also boycotted these summer games. So how about that? And there was an alternative set of games to offer those who boycotted the Olympics, it was named the Liberty Bell Classic, or the Olympic Boycott Games, and it was held in Philadelphia in 1980. Now, the, um, the governments of the UK, France, Australia, they supported the boycott, sort of. Now, what I mean by sort of, you see, they, they left a decision to their national Olympic committees and to the individual athletes. The United Kingdom and France ended up sending small athletic delegations to Moscow. So they, they sort of participated both ways. They sort of participated in the games and they sort of participated in the boycott. Now, here's another interesting factoid about those 1980 Summer Olympics. Spain and Italy participated, but only under a neutral flag with the Olympic anthem playing in any ceremony where their athletes won medals. They were there, I guess, but they weren't officially there. And at the opening ceremonies parade, 16 partially boycotting countries sent only a flag bearer to march after the placard bearer without the rest of the delegation. So you talk about not taking a stand either way, and that term sort of partially boycotting, I think, says it all. The, uh, the Soviets did engage in a tit-for-tat. They uh, returned the favor and boycotted the 1984 Summer Olympics in Los Angeles four years later. In sports history and geopolitics, yeah, they all converge with our episode 144 dedication to the U.S.-led boycott of the 1980 Summer Olympic Games in Moscow. Our sports dedication had a combination of American politics. 
we had elites meeting at Bilderberg. We had divisive issues. You put all those together, that is a concoction that makes a very nice connection to our next topic. And I'd like to discuss something that Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan said recently around late January at Davos. Now, I don't always agree with everything that Dimon says, just like I don't always agree with much of what Elon Musk says. But I do respect both of these business leaders for saying something substantive when the occasion calls for it. That alone makes these two stand out above today's mostly hollow business leaders. Heck, you might even have to call them brave to be able to speak in times like these, because these times they definitely favor the meek approach. Okay, so enough with the uh, the Jamie Dimon worship. What did he say? Well, he provided an interview on CNBC, and during that interview, he called out how the progressive elite are insulated and how they tend to vilify what he referenced as MAGA voters. So here's what he said. The Democrats have done a pretty good job with the deplorables hugging onto their Bibles and their beer and their guns. I mean, really? Could we just stop that stuff and actually grow up and treat other people with respect and listen to them a little bit? Now, that's a great quote and I think a telling insight from Diamond, which connects to a recent Rasmussen RMG research poll, which was conducted for the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Now, Rasmussen was interested in a demographic that he felt would be an outlier when it came to views. The demographic was Americans holding a postgraduate degree, earning more than $150,000 a year, and living in a high-density area. That's what most of us would define or reference as elite. So Rasmussen asked these questions in his poll, and he breaks out how this elite demographic answered the questions and how those answers differed from the rest of Americans. The, uh, the results were really interesting, so let's go through some of those. Among those elite... 74% said their finances are getting better, which compared to 20% of the rest of voters who said their finances were getting better. And if you broke out a subset of these elites to be those that obtained their degrees from elite Ivy League institutions, those responding that their finances were getting better was 88%. That um, elite demographic, it gave President Biden an 84% approval rating. 84%. They don't like them. They adore them. And the rest, or the non-elites, gave President Biden a 40% approval rating. 89% of the elites had a favorable view of university professors. 79% approved the way that journalists go about doing their job. 78% approval for lawyers and union leaders when it came to approval of those professions. And 67% approval for Congress, according to the elites as defined by the Rasmussen poll. Now, if you want to go from... The shocking to the frightening on this poll, consider the two-thirds of the elites said they prefer a candidate for office who believes that teachers and educational professionals, not parents, should decide what children are taught. That's right out of some dystopian movie or book. And unfortunately, it reflects what much of the higher education system and the public K-12 through systems throughout this nation are aiming to do. Now, the poll results when it comes to the elite demographic, it getting worse, if you can believe that. Almost 50% of elites believe that America provides too much individual freedom. And meanwhile, 60% of voters believe that there's too much government control. Now, that's what you call contrasting views. Get this, 77% of elites support the strict rationing of gas, meat, and electricity to fight climate change. I guess now we know who's setting climate change policies these days. 
And I've told you all along that climate change policies have nothing to do about atmospheric levels of CO2, and they've got everything to do with control of the individual across society and economy. Two-thirds of elite Ivy League graduates, they favor banning gasoline-powered cars and gas stoves and non-essential air travel. Well, I would love to know who gets to decide what's essential and non-essential. Of course, all of it in the name of the environment. Meanwhile, 70% of average voters, they're unwilling to pay more than $100 a year in taxes or costs for climate. But 70% of elites said they'd be willing to pay $250 up to whatever it takes for climate. And I'm sure that those elites would love to dictate that you do the same as well. Now, these elites, as defined by Rasmussen, yeah, they constitute a small minority of total voters in America. But there is a twist because the small minority of elites have outsized influence and in many instances outright control the major gears of Western societies and economies. They run the universities. They constitute the media. They sit in all the higher echelons of government and they set policy from that perch. And they run large businesses and industries. Now, with that outsized impact, you don't need elites to constitute huge percentages of the voter base. In fact, with this type of control, elites can set policies no matter what the majority of voters may think or desire. Now, you can check out the Rasmussen poll performed for the Committee to Unleash Prosperity online, if you wish. And Kimberly Strassel wrote an excellent article about this topic in the Wall Street Journal back in mid to late January. The title of it was the them versus us election. It's a great read. The uh, poll results and the Strassel article and the definition of the elite demographic, this things culminate in a quite efficient summary and validation of the underlying themes in my book, Precipice, the left's campaign to destroy America. And although I wrote that book years ago, looking at where the minds of the elites are today and where they are driving Western societies, They serve as proof points for the hypothesis laid out in Precipice. Yeah, Precipice has aged quite well the past three plus years. And, you know, that doesn't make me happy to say that because it's unfortunate for America. I wish Precipice would have been a false alarm, but instead what's going on in America is definitely not a drill. A great connection that offers itself up and that we're going to take full advantage of now is jumping from that demographic of elite into a subset of where those elites concentrate, which is the running of higher education. And that's another theme of Precipice that was the broken state of college and academia. And now everyone is starting to pick up on that reality. Part of the problem, a foundational root cause, so to speak, of academia's dire condition is its unwillingness to reform. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, there was a new chancellor of Henderson State University down in Arkansas. Now, that institution was a mess, both academically and financially. The music department, just as an example, had more faculty than graduating students. And out of the dozens of academic programs, none were able to generate enough income to cover program expenses. So the new chancellor publicizes the dire straits that the institution found itself in. And he was rebuked by the faculty, who simply ignored and rejected his logic and his data. So the chancellor took the next step, which was declaring effectively a financial emergency, sort of a parallel in the private sector that you would see for preparing for bankruptcy. And the chancellor saw the only path forward to be a substantive and a fundamental set of reforms and moves. He wanted to do things like significantly cut back programs 
and reduce faculty positions where it was rational to do so, to get the Henderson State University house in order, so to speak. But the faculty, they rose up, they were highly allergic to any accountability and financial reality, and they pushed to get the chancellor fired. So the chancellor soon left the school, and he had some interesting quotes on the topic and the experience. He said, systems don't want to change. And he also said, problems accumulate, and so does culture. I think I may appropriate that second quote from the ex-chancellor for future use because it's a great and a true thought. That broken state of academia manifests in ways beyond the experience of the chancellor that we just spoke about. I came across comparative data that when I reviewed them, I just knew I had to share with you constant listeners. I think they're going to uh, surprise you. I think you'll be very interested in these. First up, students in college today, they spend only about half as much time in class and studying that students did in college back in 1961. But guess what? Students today are three times more likely to be awarded an A grade than they were in 61. In fact, guess what the most common grade is today on college campuses? That's right, it's an A. So much less work put in by the student in higher grades handed out like candy. Are the students across college campuses at least learning something? Well, it appears they're not learning the fundamentals. One-fourth of college grads don't have basic skills in math, and about 20% don't have basic skills in literacy. But rest assured, all the students, they get to pay full tuition, which I'll get to in a minute. Yeah, higher education is rife also with conflicts of interest. That's also misunderstood. The accreditors, they're supposed to be keeping colleges at a certain level of standards to protect not just students, but also taxpayers and families who invest in college educations. But that's not occurring. The accreditors, they keep a host of schools accredited, even though they post a single-digit graduation rate. Yeah, no one seems to be checking the checkers that are accreditors. And why do they seem inept and possibly conflicted? Well, higher education these days, it's not just big business. It's beyond big business. It's not just too big to fail. It's become too big to succeed. It's unreformable. And it's a behemoth. Get this, one in 40 American workers, they today work for a college or university. And that creates a very powerful stakeholder group and lobby when it comes to policy and higher ed. Not surprisingly, dozens of proposals on the federal level to better monitor and set standards for higher education in a transparent manner, they have failed. They've been dead on arrival time and again. I mentioned tuition a minute ago. Now, the real cost of a four-year college degree increased 180% between 1980 and 2020. That creates interesting relationships across stakeholder groups. The colleges, they keep raising tuition and spending like there's no tomorrow, and the student agrees to pay the exorbitant tuition in exchange for easy classes and high GPAs and an almost guarantee of a degree as long as the student puts the minimal time in and pays the tuition for the seal of approval that you get in the form of a diploma. The form of diploma and getting your ticket stamped as a graduate, that superseded the substance of education when it comes to college. And the cost of that form is astronomical, both financially and culturally. Sadly, the societal value in having that ticket stamped in the form of a college diploma, it's never been worth less. And out of 100 freshmen in college today, 40 never graduate. So I guess instead of saying that stamping the ticket is not worth much these days, what I should have said is that many going through the process, you pay the fee, but you don't even end up getting the ticket or diploma stamped. 
And with the 60 out of the 100 students who did manage to earn a diploma from a four-year college stint, 20 of those 60, they end up chronically underemployed, which means they've effectively been ripped off by the higher education system. Now, 40 out of 100 don't finish college, and then 20 more out of the 100 are graduates but chronically underemployed. That means that a minority of students actually end up graduating college and are effectively employed, hopefully in their chosen field, roughly 40%. Show me any other product or services that charges as much as college does and delivers efficacy of only 40%. Show me such an industry that isn't labeled as a racket and that isn't under intense regulatory scrutiny and that would be facing sanction both civilly and criminally for fraud. Yet when it comes to college and higher ed, the system and government and the elites, they insist on pouring more and more of taxpayer resources into this broken mess of a debacle. We can jump from what's happening to those Rasmussen elites when they are in academia being educated, or maybe perhaps indoctrinated, depending on your persuasion, to what those elites do when they get to set policies affecting everybody. Our next connection looks back on some very interesting statements made by the vanguard of pandemic lockdown policy. The former National Institutes of Health chief, Francis Collins, was as bad as it got when it came to running over science and individual rights to justify draconian pandemic policies to deal with that virus that was unleashed in Wuhan, China. Now, Collins made some statements about COVID policy last summer that recently surfaced on social media. And ironically, the forum where he made them was a confab designed to bridge political divides. OMG. But here is what Collins said. If you're a public health person and you're trying to make a decision, you have this very narrow view of what the right decision is, and that is something that will save a life. So you attach infinite value to stopping the disease and saving a life. You attach a zero value to whether this actually totally disrupts people's lives, ruins the economy, and has many kids kept out of school in a way that they never quite recovered. Yeah, I think he, uh, he about nailed it. And he explained that it's sort of a public health mindset that, uh, that brings this thinking, which was, and he called it another mistake that we made using his words. Sorry, but you know, too little too late from someone who has done great damage to science and humanity the past four years. Remember, Collins colluded with Dr. Fauci. Remember the far middle's Fauci focus uh, feature? And they colluded to discredit the Great Barrington Declaration. And I'll remind you that the Great Barrington Declaration advocated for focused protection of elderly and high-risk demographics while letting the healthier and younger low-riskers live their lives. And Collins has the gall to say that the Barrington Declaration, I'm using his words here, could have been a great opportunity for a broad scientific discussion about the pros and cons of uh, something like focus protection. But then he blames the authors for short-circuiting debate. Come on, Doc, what do you take us for? And by the way, Collins and the National Institutes of Health tried to censor different health policy advice beyond the Barrington Declaration. And here's an example. Right after that Barrington Declaration was published, Collins emails Fauci asking for a quick and devastating published takedown of its premise. That's the quote from the email. And Collins said during this past summer's CONFAB panel that he was on that he regretted using the words takedown, but, uh, but not calling the declaration dangerous. Yeah, it's, uh, it's frustrating and it's maddening. Now, 
let's turn to the positive. Let's wrap this episode up in a nice far middle bow. Time to, to shift to the positive. Sitting in the dead of winter in late February in places like Pittsburgh, that limits your activities and your interests. And you need something to stimulate because the winter and lack of daylight, they're not going to stimulate anything other than hibernation during this time. Music is one of those activities that can fire things up in the dead of winter. And that brings us to our final connection. It's an epic record collection with a Pittsburgh connection. Now, we first aired this episode on February 21st. And on that day, back in 2008, Paul Mawinney, he had a collection of over 3 million vinyl records. It took him over 40 years to amass it. And he did that when he owned a record store in Pittsburgh. And on this day, back in 2008, he sold that collection on eBay for over $3 million. Now, the bid ends up being a sham, and Mawini holds on to his collection until 2013 when he sells it to a Brazilian business mogul and music collector. Paul Mawini is an interesting figure in music and Pittsburgh lore. He founded Record Rama, which he opened in 1968 in North Pittsburgh. I've been there and spent money there in the early 1990s. It was an awesome place. I could lose a day in there. And Mawini started the shop after his personal record collection reached the many thousands. So his record collection was growing. And his wife at the time told him to get rid of the records or start a business around them. So he started the business and he grew the record collection into the millions. So, you know, another example of being careful what you ask for at home, I suppose. And according to Urban Legend, Mawini helped restart David Bowie's career by getting fellow Pittsburgher and RCA boss Tom Cossey to re-release the album Space Oddity in 1972 after its initial release in 1969 flopped. But back to Record-Rama. By 2003, that business was struggling mightily due to large retailers who were able to sell recorded music below cost and to internet downloading much of it pirated. Innovation in tech, it took out another industry segment, as disruptive technology often does. So Mawini started his record collection in the early 1950s. Um, he built his collection by keeping one copy of every record he sold. By 2003, at over 2 million items, Mawini's collection was more than twice the size of the collection at the Library of Congress, for goodness sake. By the time the store closed in 2008, the collection stood at more than 3 million items, and it was valued at 50 million. Wow. So he tried to sell it on eBay, as I said, in 08 and failed. And he sold some sections of certain genres here and there. But he had to find a buyer for the rest of the massive trove because the maintenance costs alone were killing him in retirement. In 2013, a friend of Mawinney's told him about a classified ad in Billboard magazine. The ad read, Record Collections. We buy any record collection, any style of music. We pay higher prices than anyone else. So, Mawini took the uh, the ad up on its offer. He made contact. And in 2013, eight semis pulled up to his warehouse. The buyer, as I said, was a business magnate from Brazil. And as of 2014, that, uh, that buyer had 17 interns cataloging and recording 500 records a day out of that collection. And he planned, at least during that point in time in 14, to open an online museum. Not sure if he was successful to date with that uh, that target or that goal. So here's the vinyl, Pittsburgh legend Paul Mawinney and his record Rama in keeping legacies alive. We're going to keep the far middle legacy burning for another week, and we'll be back soon. <laughs>